Well, good morning and welcome to The Calling Vision, where we explore how you change the world by aligning and partnering with the vision that is calling you, the vision that has selected you to bring it into form. This is B.B. Harding, your host, and today I have as my guest, Anne-Marie Hoopert. Good morning, Anne-Marie. Good morning, B.B. It's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. And the same for me. Thank you very much for being here. So um, I'm going to introduce Anne-Marie, and I'll tell you, she's a woman with many diverse talents. <laughs> um, but some of the things that, you know, I looked over, you know, this, the information, the fact page, I guess, the factoid page for you. And some of the things that really struck me, as well as my limited experience, where I've interacted with you in person, it's been, you know, first of all, you're an author. And you've got the book, uh, PTSD Self-Help. I'm going to work on remembering this. Transforming Survival into a Life Worth Living, mm-hmm. which I think is a really interesting title. Um, and, and you talked, you know, later on in your, your bio that, you know, you had spent more than 20 years, you know, where you have overcome childhood sexual abuse and that you're living. I thought it was interesting. You used the term living symptom-free. Yeah. For over 20 years, which, again, was an interesting turn of phrase for me to read that. It's like, hmm, symptom-free. I like that. So in addition to those particular things, one of the things that I perceive you as is kind of like the leader of leaders in terms of nonprofit organizations. You know, you work with the executive directors. You work with the founders. And I look at it as that you help the founders in particular get in touch with their bigger why, not just, I was really impressed the day that I heard you say um, something like, you know, people found nonprofits because there's something they feel needs to be fixed in the world. And what I see you doing is working with them to see an even bigger why they're doing it. And then I look at it as you putting wings under their feet so that they can get there. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, would you agree with that too? Yeah. <laughs> well said. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you're a facilitator of vision quests and ceremonies and rituals for people and families, the individuals and their families and friends even um, that are recovering from PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, you're an equine gestaltist, you know, something you and I both share, except you're a practicing uh, equine gestaltist. Yes, uh, I am. <laughs> with your partner, Indy, you know, uh-huh. and, um, you know, you're very heavily involved in your community. You know, you work with, you know, the um, service industry that's there. You work with healthcare professionals. You work with uh, not only that, but you work as a mentor with the high school students so that they can either, you know, around mental health and political advocacy even, and you do this, you know, primarily through education and training and, you know, being a speaker and a, you know, presenter, educator, you know, the list goes on and on and on for you. And, um, you know, one of the things that I looked at for you is that really want to salute the essence of presence that you've got mm-hmm. that allows you to be a leader. You know, and it's the kind of leader that doesn't come from forcefulness, like, oh, let me take the lead here. You know, you you, you're just present and people, you know, look to you and your wisdom. And I really feel that that's probably arises out of all of the deep personal work that you've done. And yeah, and and it's really funny because just before this phone call, I mean, before this interview started, we were talking about like the colonel or the gym that wanted to come forward. And you talked, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, your vision comes out of the work that you do, you know, who you are. Yeah. So, anyway, welcome, Emory. If you feel like I left anything out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you did a fantastic yeah. job. And, and uh, people have remarked that uh, sometimes they use the term that I'm a Jill of all trades, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> my professional path when you know one looks at my cv really does seem kind of disparate as if i was you know meandering all over the globe but 
uh, it's only now in my 50s that I realize how much everything has been woven together. And uh, I am really experiencing the joy of entering into the second half of my life and um, settling into who I am and being comfortable in my skin and really, you know, enjoying the evolution of my vision now. Mm. So what do you feel are, you know, with all the disparate this, I can't even say the word there. Um, so what do you feel the common thread has been? You know, what have you discovered about that? Yeah, right. Well, you know, it really, um, the common thread for me is something that I began to um, utilize as an anchor point in my life. And that is that I developed um, a personal mission statement early on in my life and my 20s. Um, this mission statement was as the result of a woman's work um, who uh, developed a book called The Path. Lori Beth Jones is her name. And in that book, she teaches people how to develop a personal mission statement. And mine is to unearth and ignite excellence through integrity. And what mm. that means for me is that uh, when I say that I help people unearth or I do that for myself, that means that I come from this premise of belief that um, we already have everything that we need inside of us. The answers to life's questions, um, our own personal healing, that inside we are whole and complete. And to help a person unearth that means that it's simply buried under a bunch of junk, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. it'll help dusting that off and discovering that within themselves. And then you talked about my presence a little bit, that my presence is one of energy and hope and encouragement and a deep level of peace. And that really acts as an ignition point when people discover that unearthing within themselves, then there's a moment of inspiration that comes that acts as an ignition point. And what I find is that many people who work with me from that point begin to feel this calling on their lives. And so um, they continue to sometimes hang around in my sphere, they'll um, have the experience of clarity. And so that kind of leads into the next part of my mission statement, the excellence piece of it. Excellence to me is not about perfection. Although in my um, years before I recovered from post-trauma, I was a perfectionist to the hilt. I scheduled every single second of my day was taken up with structure and I knew from one second to the next exactly what I was doing, who I was talking to, what my messaging was be. Oh my gosh, I was micromanaging the heck out of myself. You know, um, but excellence really is about doing the very best you can with what mm. you have in any given moment. All of us have had the experience of moving forward in life and maybe reflecting back on um, past pain or past decisions. And when we reflect back, we think to ourselves sometimes, you know, I probably could have done that differently. Maybe I would do that differently now. But the truth of the matter is when life arises in a present moment, we really do rise to that occasion with everything that we have in that moment. And we do the very best we can. And so for me, excellence is about that. It's about doing the best you can with what you have right now and not second guessing yourself or your decisions or your actions that are made in that moment. And then lastly, I do that through integrity. And integrity to me means two different things. One, it's the uh, common thought, uh, like most people, that integrity is about walking your talk. And that is most certainly true for me. I do not coach or mentor people in areas of which I am not skilled or have not experienced myself. Um, and I just keep my mouth shut <laughs> on things that I am not informed about, you know. But the other part of integrity for me is um, about this concept. And it's this, 
what works is that question. And so a metaphor to, to help people understand this is this idea of a bicycle wheel, right? A bicycle wheel has many spokes in it. And if any number of those spokes are broken, then that wheel lacks integrity, which means it's not safe for use. And oh, good point. So, for, so for me, integrity is also about what is working in your life? What really works for you in this here and now moment? So as I moved through my life, I utilize this mission statement as my true north kind of uh, compass. And in any given moment, I would ask myself, is what I'm about to think, do, or say going to get me closer to or further away from unearthing and igniting excellence through integrity? And at that point, then I simply followed my bliss. I followed what helped me to feel good, helped me to feel better with whatever I was setting my intention toward. And for many um, years, that intention was set towards um, understanding post-traumatic stress and then eventually dedicating three years of my life 24 seven to doing whatever I could to find a way out. And uh, that was a three year process of recovery. Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you, there were several things in there that um, were kind of intriguing to me. One of them is, you know, your your reference to the fact that, you know, you were a perfectionist, and you had your life totally regimented. How did you walk the talk to get out of that? (laughs) <laughs> what were the, yeah, what were the things that allowed you to start opening up and start experiencing without the regimentation? Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it's um, at the time, you know, it was like walking blindfolded down a path. You know, there are some, um, you know, uh, parables and um Proverbs that talk about having a lamp unto your feet, right? And that PTSD healing journey was really like that. I could only see not very far in front of myself as I was journeying through that. And so really it was um, at that time very much focused on, you know, what can I do right now in this moment to help alleviate whatever symptoms I was feeling And so as I began to find completion with regard to some unfinished business uh, surrounding the trauma that I had experienced and and abuse I had experienced up into my 30s, as those things resolved, it made more space within my mind, within my soul, to be able to start to um, what I sometimes say, get on top of the bubble, right? to be able to find completion in in those things gave me the opportunity then to be able to look out a little bit further and say to myself, okay, well, instead of being in a position of always responding to how PTSD and life was showing up, how can I get on top of the bubble and be more intentional about creating my future instead of responding, you know, to what was happening in any given moment. And so that mission statement, truthfully, every single moment of every day was like, am I getting closer to or further away from unearthing and igniting excellence through integrity within myself? I had to do it for myself first Mm -hmm. before I could ever even think about, you know, being of service in some capacity to the world or to my community. And so, um, it really was a moment by moment walk with that lamp, um, that mission statement as my lamp unto my feet. So when you were going through the experience, um, were there landmarks that allowed you to see that you were making, quote, making progress or that you were aligning more to the vision statement that you had written in your 20s? And did you have an awareness of that? Or was it just kind of like many years later, you suddenly woke up and went, whoa, my life is different. Um, <laughs> um, no, I had um, I had some 
I had some clear markers. Um, there were probably, I would say, five to six very specific incidents in my past life that, uh, not my past past life. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, in your previous style of living. Yes, <laughs> my pre-recovery life, I guess we would say. Um, there were at least six painful experiences that had been buried within me that were unfinished business that I knew I needed to look squarely at then the more practical thing I, again an alignment with integrity and what works really practically um when i began that healing journey my goal was to not have any more physical symptoms and secondly to not be afraid post-traumatic stress is this experience of like this looming impending doom that is continually following you around like a dark cloud. And I literally felt like a walking dead person, <laughs> numb to most every feeling except for anger. And at the same time, being tremendously frightened and continuously looking over my shoulder, wondering when the next trigger was going to blow me out of the water and sometimes it would take me months to recover from triggers. Mm -hmm. and I did not want to live that way anymore. The physical symptoms were terrible and a very long, long list of symptoms that I talk about in the beginning note portion of my book. Um, but suffice it to say that many of those symptoms, as I would seek medical uh, treatment for them, would go either undiagnosed completely um, as mysterious, you know, symptomology, or uh, I would be misdiagnosed. Um, at one time, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and was put on steroidal medication. I was taking 15 pills a day, and, and there was no pathology to support that diagnosis. Um, and what it was, was unresolved trauma. And so my benchmarks were, am I feeling better? Am I having fewer symptoms? Um, and am I addressing the unfinished business of my life? Am I feeling less afraid? And in feeling less afraid, that meant that I needed to equip myself with, with tools that at any given moment, um, when that trauma would arise, you know, the unresolved issues would arise, I would have a, a way of um, not coping with it but turning and facing it squarely and um, grappling with it to bring it to completion. I imagine that, um, did you feel like at the time that you were doing this, because it was internal work, that you were doing this all alone? Or did you feel like that there was support, whether it was either physically here on the earth plane or, you know, spiritually? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's see. Um, I would say I have a very deep spiritual connection that is separate from religion. I have had some near-death experiences that have brought me very close to a presence in my life that has always been with me. So I will say that that presence um, I call Jesus um, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, speaks very clearly in within myself. Um, that voice and that presence um, is something that was buried deep inside me and always has been. And so in that respect, I never really felt alone. Now, to say, um, when I finally turned and faced this PTSD issue head on in my early 30s. I mentioned that I dedicated three years to recovering from that. It was because I was headed towards my second nervous breakdown. And the last time I had had one at 25 years old, they had said, man, you need to be hospitalized. 
And that was not something I wanted in my early 30s. I was a practicing coach at that time. It really messed with my sense of integrity to not be mentally well and trying to help people. So I put my coaching practice on hold and I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, it's showdown time with post-trauma. We're going to resolve this issue and I'm not going to quit until I find the solutions that I mentioned. And so um, interestingly, I had very little support from family or friends. Hmm. Um, although my father um, was, you know, a large part of my life, we were very close and I have my son, I was married at the time, uh, involved in uh, Christian church leadership. I was surrounded by literally because of the work I did hundreds and thousands of people, but no one wanted to come near and get their hands dirty and help in this mess because it was, um, it could be a little scary sometimes. And some of the work that I do now is I act as a translator for families who have a loved one who are struggling with post-trauma. I help them understand the person's behaviors and their thought process and how they're viewing the world. And that really helps the families then continue to embrace them and not be so fearful about their loved one's um, mental wellness condition at that time. So I had um, literally no one, even my husband at the time was not interested in helping me. And um, I came up against a situation at one point where I was um, awoken in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m. in the morning, and I was in the middle of a full-blown flashback. I thought I was 10 years old, trapped in a cabin up in the woods, and I had to get out and away. And... I grabbed my car keys and it was it's a strange experience being a 30 year old woman who feels like she's acting like a 10 year old and being powerless to stop that. Grabbed my car keys and got in my car and started driving. Didn't even know where I was headed. And uh, I ended up on the front porch of a, um, at that time, a good friend's um, vacant condominium. And I called her and I said, I, I need help and I don't know how I got here, but um, I'm afraid now to get back in my car and leave. And she let me stay in her condominium. I was stuck there with agoraphobia for about six months. Wow. Had literally walked out on my family and um, that person was my healing partner for that three-year journey. Um, her name was Rebecca Cooper and she um, was the only one the only one that showed up for me and she showed up in big ways every single day uh, for that entire three-year journey and I actually um, dedicated the book PTSD self-help to her in honor of the sacrifice that she made during that time. Wow that's an incredible story. So when you look back and you say you know there was nobody there to help you is it, is it also, you know, when you talked about being a translator, you know, for the families and the loved ones, at the same time, is it really a case of people just going, I, I have no idea what to do? Mostly. Yeah. And, yeah, that's and, and is that one of the reasons why um, you still work with families to help, excuse me, to help them understand that? Yeah. To, to give them a sense of knowing of how to, how they can cope or how they can assist. I, yeah, for sure. Um, the book, a number of people, you know, it's been out since 2014. And uh, much of the feedback that I get surrounding the book is from family members and friends and co-workers who read the book and then have a better understanding of what um, someone that they're caring for is going through. And they at least have a framework to be able to talk to them about what's happening and, and understand exactly what their role could be in supporting them. Um, and you're right. It's a scary thing to watch someone go through. It's, um, you know, um, it's not an easy journey. It is 100% recoverable. 
Um, and I tell people, you know, this is not a life sentence. You don't have to simply embrace it and cope. That's why, hence the subtitle, <laughs> Transforming Survival, which I see as treading water perpetually as a survivor, transforming that into a life that's really worth living, where you get to say goodbye to that part of your life and be able to really create something that you enjoy that comes from your deep calling and uh, whatever vision uh, wants to come through you. Yeah, you talked about um, having a mission statement at 20, which in my world, that's pretty early. <laughs> um, you know, I have no idea what today's youth is doing, whether they feel that they have something that's that um, profound. But that was actually a pretty profound vision for you to have in your 20s. Is that something that you kept in front of you? Like, did you, you know, I know people have taken their, their mission statements and, you know, put them in um, a ceiling what they call it, laminate them, have them so that they read them every day. Did did you make overt efforts to to remind yourself of that vision every day or regularly? Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I still um <laughs> one of my primary workshop sticks that you know when I'm out there doing the dog and pony show is um is this workshop called Finding Your Bigger Yes. And in that workshop, I help people develop a single sentence long mission statement, somewhere between six and eight words. And as an author, I am very wrapped up in words and the meaning of words and the idea that words are simply pointing to something bigger that you can't quite grasp or get your mind wrapped around, but at least they're like little signs. And so for me, when I developed my own mission statement, it was a continuous ringing of that internal bell that said, this is who I am at my core, and this is how I'm going to show up in the things that I think, say, and do. And in that workshop, most definitely, people print out their mission statement on pieces of paper, and I tell people, plaster it everywhere you are. You're on your refrigerator, in your rearview mirror of your car, on your computer, on the bathroom mirror, I mean, everywhere, on doors, I mean, until you really get it embedded in your spirit. And when you create a mission statement that really resonates with you, it isn't difficult to commit to memory. But the reason that's important is because... Um, well, in the in my world with post-trauma, at any given time, my mm -hmm. the adrenaline response within me would hijack my brain. <laughs> and I couldn't remember, you know, what I did two minutes ago, let alone try to memorize some, you know, fully formed vision or something. And so to have a single sentence that chooses verbs that are action words. And then connecting those action words with some core values, which I call, you know, kind of wing words, really per gives an engine uh, to that statement where you get some motion and some action out of, you know, the memorization piece of it. And, um, and then take all of those stickers and all those reminders away and simply ask yourself as you move through life, is this who I am? Would I be willing to travel the world to represent this to humanity and ask your friends, does this sound like me? And do you see me operating in this way? And, um, and at some point, you know, you don't need the props anymore. It becomes a part of who you are. And then in another practical way, I teach people to utilize their mission statement to answer that, um, that elusive question. Tell me a little bit about yourself. <laughs> where do you start with that right especially when you're someone like myself who has a wide and varied background of experiences well that's where I start with the core of who I am you know let me share with you a mission statement that I created when I was in my 20s that is still true today mm. yeah I was going to say most people answer well I'm a mother of three you know mm. I it, whatever and it's really you know I know supporting people to go even deeper than that and, you know, have that vulnerability. Part of the reason why I asked you that question was, and you brought it up in this part um, when you answered it, is the fact that I can imagine that when you're, you're being triggered in your post-traumatic, you know, stress, 
that the last thing on your mind is, is thinking about your vision statement. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and then it's like, you know, how do you have the prompts to remind you? You know, because um, I know for myself that, you know, I've gone through life and there are things that drop in and then it's kind of like I live life and they kind of drop to the background. And, you know, this was enough of a critical mission statement. Not Critical might not be the right word, but it, let's put it profound enough. Mission statement that to have it guiding you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you, you're talking about, like, is this who I am? Am I living true to this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, am I bringing, you know, is it bringing me joy? Um, yeah. That that's been a huge way to have the inroads to make the transformation that you've done. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And so part of it is like, you know, did you remain conscious of that? Yeah. And you were, especially while you were going through your three-year healing cycle. Oh, for sure. I remember many times being on the floor, you know, uh, wailing and not crying, but literally wailing and releasing all of that inner pain something that in our gestalt work we call keening right and think the only thought I could hold in my mind is am I getting closer to excellence in doing this meaning am I doing am I doing what I can with what I have right now and all I could do at that point was to let it out and so you know I would be okay with laying on the floor and letting it out, you know, because at that moment, that was excellence for me because I was doing the very best I could with what I had right then. I just got a picture of I'm doing the very best whale I can. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I was thinking that, you know, there was a period of time, I don't remember what decade it was in, but primal screams yes. where, you know, therapy was, you know, something that was very prevalent, you know, where people... And I can remember being in a few workshops where, you know, people let out some um, pretty hair-raising primal scream. Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 It's the scream that needed to come out at the time that the trauma was being inflicted and was withheld. And, uh, and as you can imagine, for Rebecca, who was my healing partner at the time, she often would be holding me during that time or be in the room at least to make sure I was okay. It was hair raising for her. I imagine. You know, a complete novice, a lay person who had no idea what was happening. You know, here's this woman in my condo who's, you know, pardon my French, but losing her shit, you know, (laughs) it's like, oh my gosh, am I safe? Is she safe? brings up a lot of those questions yeah yeah so for you you know okay so you went through what let's call it your three-year healing cycle yeah and your life had to have been extremely different when you got to the other side of that Hmm. what did you notice started to unfold for you having gone through this deep internal healing process yeah what began to unfold what breadcrumbs did you start to notice Mm -hmm. for about where to go forward Oh man, yeah. Well, I this was uh this healing process was really ignited in the early aughts, right? And um at that time there were not a, a lot of resources for people who had post traumatic stress. Um certainly not lay people. When you went to Barnes and Noble huh, at the time when there was an actual store where you could look at the shelf <laughs> and have coffee. <laughs> yes, and have coffee. Um, most of the books on that shelf surrounding post-traumatic stress were of a collegiate level. They were written for um, professionals who were working in that field. I literally, during that healing journey, gobbled up every book I could find to try to understand what was happening. And what I came to realize pretty quickly were that there were no resources. Uh, The best you could do was maybe get into a mental health professional and then they would label you. And every time you went back, they would continue to um, basically verify their diagnosis. Um, There wasn't even really any medication at that time. They didn't, they didn't know what would work. And so um, I am a uh, trained 
paralegal. And so I have a legal background um, in addition to uh, my psychology degree and my public policy work. And so I took copious notes throughout this healing journey, just really documenting every angle of what I was doing to try to help myself simply feel better. And I tried a lot of things that are mainstream, things like yoga and belly dancing and stuff like that, Um, martial arts and horse therapy and all kinds of things that I was doing in addition to my traditional mental health therapy appointments. And what I began to realize was uh, that um, somebody needed to coordinate an opportunity for people to be able to recover and bring all of those kinds of helpful resources together into one location. So really it was born out of my own need where I said to myself, God, I wish that there was just one place I could go and check myself Mm -hmm. in and receive an opportunity to explore all of these different things that I'm exploring out in the world that I'm finding are helping me to feel better. I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to travel all over the Western Washington area to try and find relief for myself. Um, And I just really wanted to bring all of that together in one location for myself. And what I realized was that, well, if I'm struggling with this, because, you know, war starts at home sometimes, right? People think that post-trauma is all about veterans. It's not. Sometimes war starts at home. And I thought, well, if I'm going through this, there certainly has to be more people and maybe they would benefit from that. And that's where my vision for something I talk about at the end of my book uh, came about. And that was the Center for Hope and Renewal which was a healing uh, retreat slash facility somewhere here in Washington state that would bring all of those modalities together and give people the opportunity to be able to check into that facility and be cared for until they could get their feet back on the ground again. So is that still a viable organization? No. (laughs) Okay. Well, yes, and that's the funny thing about vision. Yes, it's continually a living, uh, breathing thing that I have had the tremendous enjoyment of watching now. Here we are in 2023. I have watched so many healing centers open up now, and post traumatic stress is a common term that's tossed about and sometimes too liberally. And I am am so pleased in my work now, um, helping visionaries, founders, um, founders of socially conscious uh, businesses and nonprofits, helping them create these visions and then really guiding them and providing these services to other people. At some point, um, although I had tried a number of times to caused the Center for Hope and Renewal to manifest in in full form, I always felt a little bit of reluctance to doing it. And I wasn't quite sure what that was all about until my first granddaughter was born. (laughs) And I realized that I didn't want to be tied to a 30 plus acre facility. I wanted to be more fluid and, and be able to be a part of more things. And so um, I have now kind of, I see the Center for Hope and Renewal as more of a concept now that I teach people in, um, and it's phrased this way, centered for hope and renewal. So I teach people how to center within themselves and create an imaginary place within their mind that as they're going through a post-trauma healing journey, they can escape to within themselves to find safety and security and peace, no matter where they are or what they're doing. And to me, that is really the highest vision that I could have for a healing center because, um, you know, what happens when you check out of the 30 acre facility and you go home, right? 
what's going to happen then? Well, I had a plan for that in the vision, but it was quite cumbersome. And, you know, how, how better to, than to help someone develop it within themselves? I think Viktor Frankl, who's a um, survivor of the Holocaust, he underwent horrible torture at the hands of um, Nazis who were holding him and doing scientific experiments on his body. That's exactly how he got through that time was he went deep within himself and he escaped to a place within himself that they could never touch. And that's what I help um, post-traumatic stress survivors develop within themselves now. So part of what it sounds as if the unfolding of the vision is not only teaching people how to be centered within themselves, but teaching others and how they can help people to center themselves. Would you would you say that that's an accurate reflection? Um, if they chose to, you know, if they chose to, absolutely. And I would also say that there is nothing more telling than witnessing a person who can demonstrate integrity. Mm -hmm. so, we know this from children and the way that children grow up. Children know how to operate and survive in life by observing parents and adults around them, and then they mimic them. Well, likewise, for a survivor to take on the healing journey and then begin to walk that path, every, everyone who loves and cares about them is watching. And as that person's life begins to change and unfold, um, inadvertently, they're showing the people that they care about how to walk that same path, even though they're not maybe consciously walking them step by step or holding their hand through the process. <clears throat> people are watching. And um, yeah, there's some there's also some drawbacks to that in that uh, the people who are watching sometimes feel threatened by a survivor's healing journey because it does cause as humans are we we often compare ourselves to other humans so those who are watching seeing someone making strides and recovering and healing it causes other people people who are watching to reflect on their own life mm -hmm. and start to examine, wow, you know, maybe I have some unfinished business too. Could I do what they're doing? And they start to compare. And sometimes people get afraid and um, they will distance themselves from someone who's actively healing because it feels threatening to them. Uh, it's kind of like holding up a mirror to them. And also, um, I think that sometimes those who are closely aligned with someone who is healing receive benefit in making sure that that person stays unhealed because then they know how to deal with them. They know how to manipulate them. They know how to push their buttons. But when that survivor begins to rise up and have a mind of their own and start to realize, you know, no, this is what I want. Sometimes people don't know how to process that. They don't know how to evolve and grow and heal alongside them. And they'll, they'll disappear. So yeah, I'm going to say my experience on that is, is that if you're close to anybody, when one person changes, you have to change too. Mm -hmm. you, you know, either that or you, you do disappear, yeah. you know, because the relevancy of that person being in your life and your, your need to rise to the occasion, um, it, it, either you do it or you don't. It's and true. You know, I've I've noticed that for most people, they don't. Yeah. You know, you've got somebody who's a core um, of a relationship, and they they start doing the changes, and next thing you know, there's divorces and people disappearing from their lives, and you know yeah. what happened. So, definitely, have experienced that personally. Yes, and that's you know, it's a painful part of post traumatic growth. That's a term now. <laughs> You know, post-traumatic growth is, that's what you're describing right there, BB, is that, yeah. you know, people, as they continue to heal and walk their healing path, um, as I think we do, you know, for, you know, most of our lives, we continue to walk that path. And um, at some point, we look around and realize that the people we started this journey out with 
are not the same people that we're ending the journey with, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yep. that's one of the things in my book. I talk very frankly about to survivors. Right. The book, by the way, is written directly to survivors and I don't rehash, uh, you know, what is post-trauma and, you know, educating you. You already know what it is because you're living yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, you're I am very focused on helping you get out. And so uh, the whole beginning part of the book is dedicated to counting the cost of what it will take for you to walk that path. And it's not only dollars and cents, it's also relationships. Yep. So I know that you're going through kind of a personal transformation now. Mm -hmm. Are you able to, in this moment, see like what's calling you next? Mm -hmm. Is it changing? Is it getting bigger? What do you notice? Yeah, I notice that... um, as I mentioned, you know, it's this idea of being centered for hope and renewal and helping um, people who have big vision and calling find a way to begin to walk that path. And oh my goodness, you know, what was my sphere of influence right here in little Gig Harbor, Washington is now expanding globally. Um, I have global alliances with uh, Rotary International and Touch by a Horse, which is an international company as well. Um, Hope Through Horses, which is an international nonprofit organization. Uh, my, my net weaving tendencies are really spanning the globe. And I'm, I'm so pleased to be able to watch my vision unfold through the good work of other people who see a need in their community and arise within themselves to respond to that calling and meet that need. And so I see myself truly as a guide and kind of a bridge for people who are um, attempting to bring that vision into form. I'm just thinking to myself, um, so would you would you say that your role and the vision that's calling you, you know, becoming more of an international presence, was you 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 mentioned the term bridge, you know, possibly an example, but how do you consider your active role in partnering with that vision? Mm-hmm. Well, it begins with um, it all begins with the founder you know, the person receiving the call. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a quote, and I can't name the person, but the quote is that um, never underestimate the belief that one person can change the world because, in fact, that's the only thing that ever has is for one person to say, you know what, I see an opportunity for change. And so really that's where I begin is with that person who feels very alone um, and has this burning desire within them to affect change in some way. And I don't have any particular, I have some tools and I have some methods, but really it's whatever those individuals bring to that moment. And interestingly enough, because of my background and most of my work is by you know referral based, I tend to get the same kind of themed individuals, right? So, um, and also I pursue, you know, individuals who are having a calling surrounding things that are interesting to me so that I feel satisfied and fulfilled in the work that I do. Um, I'm very excited about an opportunity to work with an organization this summer called Tacoma Arts Live, which is trying to solve societal problems through the arts. And though that's a pretty general kind of idea, but man, are they showing up big time in music and theater and ballet and all kinds of things. And so I'm really looking forward to the possibility of doing more work with them at the end of the summer. Nice. But yeah, it really begins with that person who really feels within them this deep sense of calling. And where we begin is with what is it in your painful past 
that is resonating with you to cause you to see the need for change. And we get really clear <laughs> about what that painful past lightning strike, as Melissa Pierce likes to say, or that moment is. And very quickly bring some sense of um, completion to that person, of finishing that unfinished business, being able to say what they needed to say or do what they needed to do in that moment to advocate for themselves. And then on the heels of that, then we revisit and we say, do you still feel that resonance? Do you still feel that calling? Or are you so complete that now maybe there will be something else that arises. Sometimes mm -hmm. that happens. People finish that painful past moment and they're like, oh no, now I'm good. Now I don't feel like I need to go start a nonprofit to feed the homeless or whatever. So in that respect, then I encourage them, join up with another organization who's doing the work that you originally resonated with and pro provide your wisdom and your healing support to others if you still feel compelled to do that. And then many times, you know, people do resolve or find that uh, when they complete that unfinished business, they're like, nope, it's still burning in my bones and <laughs> I've got to do this. And then we kind of go start moving through the next steps or, okay, what does that really look like? You know, and and is anybody else out there already doing that work? And if they are, you know, is there a way that you can bring a unique solution to what they're doing? And then we ask again, might this be better served by you partnering with someone who's already doing it and bringing a fresh perspective? So you're not coming into direct competition with them for dollars and cents in your community or whatever that might be. And if they say, nope, this is really unique. And um, I still feel really called to do this. Then we talk about, okay, what's the structure for that? Is that going to be a nonprofit, a socially conscious for-profit business or some other structure? So. I'm also aware, you, aware that you and Chris Angel are working together to create a community around this. And suddenly I'm kind of getting the, you know, the hit here that, that community is kind of like a next step for you where you're bringing people together so that they can have the, the conversation about all the things that you just mentioned, you know, what are the things that are the real drivers and do you, if you heal a driver, is it still present? And, and then, you know, how you go about it. Um, do you want to say a few words about the community that you're trying to create? Yes, absolutely. Um, this began uh, for me, this, this next unfoldment of my vision began for me in the fall. Uh, typically in October, I host a workshop where people do an examination of the last year, uh, looking forward and looking back at their lives and making an assessment. And we complete that by Thanksgiving and we create a little ceremony around uh, the closure of the year. And um, that ceremony is complete um, at Thanksgiving time, you know, great time to be grateful and thankful for having the year prior. And then that frees everyone up to enjoy the holidays because <laughs> then the whole month of December is about, wow, you know, now I get to just relax and know that my year is complete and I know exactly what I'm going to do on January 1st. And it's not about goal setting. It's not about new year's resolutions. And for me this last year, I said to myself, I want to work in teams with people who, who met some very specific criteria. I wanted to work with people who wanted to experience that um, idea of a win, you know, that feeling that you have when you're like, yes, I did it. You know, I wanted to be able to work with people who could do that. I wanted people who were um, enlightened and wanted to connect to source and allow something to come through them. And, and over the weeks, I started to really get clearer about who I wanted to work alongside. And um, so then, you know, uh, I think in December, Chris had made a post on Facebook and he had mentioned something about nonprofits and grants and not a person had made a comment at all on it. It was like, <laughs> you know, crickets. 
And for me personally, in my work, I move people offline as quickly as possible. I get them um, IRL, which is in real life, right? I get them offline out of their curated avatar life and I get them out in nature and actively pursuing who they are as human beings, helping to return humanity to sanity is what I call that. Oh, that's nice. And so um, it's not my nature to hang out much online. And so I hear I see this post that Chris made and I nobody commenting and I go, well, I've got something to say about that. So I made an off, you know, quick comment about how I felt that nonprofits were going to be changing in the 21st century. I think the game that is being played in the nonprofit world is one um, that's been dysfunctional for a long time. Many nonprofits get caught up in chasing the dollar instead of um, doing the good work that they feel called to do. And I know that nonprofit founders struggle with that um, because you do rely on donated funds and grant money. And um, that's what, you know, makes sure that you can provide your programs. And then unfortunately, mission drift happens. Um, founder burnout begins to happen, dysfunction on board starts to happen. And so um, what I know is that more than 10% of the gross national product in the United States comes from nonprofit organization. It's a trillion dollar industry. And the United States government in particular is relying on nonprofit organizations, meaning you and me to step up to the plate and become a nonprofit to solve society's problems. They are done providing government programs. They are done providing government subsidies. They are happy to throw out grant money to nonprofits who are brave enough to try to align with the government and get a few scraps off the table. But really, they're relying on nonprofits to solve societal problems. And in some respects, it makes sense. Because, um, you know, people who are involved in their community know that community's needs best yep. and they know how to meet the need. There's a little bit of dysfunction in that, though, because the pipeline to funding these things is not an easy pathway. And so um, I said some of that in my response to Chris and he immediately contacted me privately. He's like, we need to have a conversation. So we did. And we met, you know, face to face on Zoom. Uh, it was our first time meeting. We had a great conversation for about an hour. We both agreed that something wanted to happen between the two of us on this topic. We could sense this thing that we couldn't put a word to. Again, you know, words are pointers mm -hmm. pointing at the thing we can't quite wrap our mind around. And we simply made this agreement. We said, Let's meet once a week on Fridays for an hour and let's just keep talking to each other about whatever's up front and whatever we're thinking about. And we did that through December, through January. We still meet once a week <laughs> and it has unfolded. Uh, and so we developed and co-founded together um, npoimpact.org and the event, the NPO Founders Forum NPO stands for nonprofit organization. Mm -hmm. We hosted our first NPO Founders Forum uh, not too long ago. We had a panel of experts from the I, the tax industry, bookkeeping, uh, people who help with forms filling out. Chris provided the messaging component. I provided the visionary component. Uh, we had a fundraiser and a panel of experts that were able to answer people's questions, uh, people who were trying to decide, should I start a nonprofit or not? Or if I already am involved in a nonprofit and I just feel like I'm pushing that rock up the hill, what do I need to do to relieve that burden so that I can get back to doing the important work that I know I'm called to do? Excellent. Yeah, we're still... Yeah. Uh, getting ready to launch our um, MPO Impact community where we'll invite uh, people to apply to be a part of the community. And if you meet the qualifications, we'll invite you into the conversation about rewriting the impact that nonprofit organizations will have moving into the 21st century. It sounds like a very big vision, <laughs> very big. So um, before we wrap up for today, um, 
thank you for your time. This has been very informative and very interesting for me. Um, I, if you were to give, you know, the listeners, you know, a piece of wisdom for them to walk away with, what might that be? Right. Yeah. I would say that, um, if you feel something inside you that's drawing you forward, this idea of a calling that remember it's always only about you and so if you are able to meet your own need with regard to that calling if you can solve that problem that you recognize as being out in the world the only reason you recognize it is because somewhere within you 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 identify with it right if you can remember that that's where that calling is coming from and that's what's pulling you forward then understand that essentially this is, um, as you continue to walk that out, it's simply an experience of having source, the divine, express itself through you. It's going to change. It's going to modify and morph according to whatever it is that you need to learn in order to be the best version of you you can be to um, bring that message to a larger audience, if that's what you feel called to do. And so from that standpoint, you know, getting into my practical side of myself, that means get really clear about who you want to be in relation to the vision. And then at that point, once you're clear about who you are in that vision, then you can start to think about being in service to other people. Um, and by doing that, you simply are trying things on. As you move through life and a door opens, you walk through that door of opportunity, try on that experience, and then reflect and go, did I get closer to or further away from who I said I wanted to be? And um, continue on down that path. And before you know it, you'll look back and start to recognize that many of the things that you've been doing all have a common thread in them. And that common thread is really going to help the evolution of your soul and um, propel you down your own healing path as you uh, look for an opportunity to be in service to others. Thank you. Well said. Um, if people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? You can email me at the letter A dot, the letter E dot, and my last name, Hoopert, H-U-P-P-E-R-T, at live.com. Or you can visit my website, which is Life Navigation E-G-C, that stands for equinegestaltcoaching.com. And you can read more about me there on the website and certainly contact me uh, through the contact page there. Awesome. Hi, Marie, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a You're pleasure to, to be here and having this conversation with you. Absolutely. I hope we get to have another conversation again soon. Yeah, me too.